to Mark 10. Um, if uh, you need a Bible, you can grab one uh, from the information table in the back. Uh, we would love to, uh, to, to put a copy of God's Word in your hand, and so grab one of those now or on your way out if you would like. Also, um, just as a side note, um, we are constantly and continuously encouraging those who are a part of the fellowship here at Christ the King to be engaging those in their spheres of influence with God's Word and with the Gospel, and so um, hopefully that is leading to a lot of conversations with non-Christians, with nominal believers, maybe with uh, with with those who are not as familiar with God's word, perhaps as um, you might be, and so if you are meeting now with someone like that, or if um, if you have someone like that in mind that you want to begin meeting with, then grab uh, grab one of those Bibles and take those um, take that with you to, to give to them. We would love for them to have a copy of God's word as you begin studying that uh, with them as well. Um, we're in Mark chapter 10. We, we concluded our time in Mark 9. We have for the past um, 9, 10 months been going through uh, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, the gospel of Mark. Um, as we are seeing Jesus' good news concerning this better kingdom um, that is being initiated through his, um, through his earthly ministry. We're getting glimpses of it, right, of broken people being, um, being set free from the bondage of sin and death, right, and experiencing life um, in Christ. And so um, that's kind of what we've been witnessing over the past couple of weeks. A few, uh, a few weeks ago, we turned the corner in Mark's gospel, and we now see Jesus spending a lot of time um, teaching and engaging his followers uh, with uh, the news that he has come to, to share and um, the, um, the ability of the gospel, the, the good news of the coming of this kingdom, to connect with and to inform all areas of life. And we come uh, to uh, a passage this morning that is going to continue to do that. Um, it has been uh, an incredible couple of weeks, an incredible couple of months within the Fellowship of Christ, the King Church. We're really, really grateful and thankful for the Lord's faithfulness and all that he continues to do in the hearts of people. Um, We've got uh, women's studies and men's studies and collegiate studies that are taking place. We have a membership class that's taking place right now. Um, we're going into week three tonight in spite of the rain and the winds, right? We're going to meet here and we're going to start week three of the membership course. Um, it's given way to some really incredible conversations about covenant community, right? And it's uh, and its purpose among God's people, to obedience and practice of God's ordinances for the church. Last week we had a really wonderful conversation uh, about the Lord's Supper and baptism, um, confession and encouragement and accountability, the pursuit of holiness for God's people, and a life lived on, uh, on mission. It has been really, really, really really encouraging over the past few weeks. And so I would um, encourage you, if you are not currently going through the membership class here at Christ the King and you are regularly attending, man, find a body of believers to connect with, to be a part of, to enjoy covenant community and all of the benefits of being a part of the local church. Um, I would encourage you to begin considering uh, your place here in this fellowship. Um, and if you find that this is not the place for you, man, there are some really, really good uh, gospel-centered churches here in our community, and I would encourage you to find one of those and to plug in and to be a part. That's our desire, man, is to see God grow his kingdom 
uh, and we realize that he does that in other places as well. And so we're grateful. We're grateful for um, that. This morning, for the second time in nine months, ten months, uh, we're going to look closely at Matthew's parallel account of what we're going to see in Mark chapter ten. Uh, we're going to see this morning from Mark ten Jesus informing. The religious leaders' understanding of Genesis chapter 2, okay? The ideal portrait of the marriage relationship while correcting the way that they interpret and apply the writing of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24 related to marriage and divorce. And so this is what we're seeing in God's word. Uh, This is what we're seeing in God's word this morning. Um, uh, I told, I was joking with Anna Jones, who perhaps you know her, her father, Donnie Jones, was here with us for some time before um, he began preaching weekly at Oak Mountain Presbyterian. Um, and he preached a, uh, a message entitled The Gospel Marriage some months ago. And I told Anna earlier this week, I'm like, we're going to do the gospel marriage part two, because I think that God has a lot to say um, to his people in Mark chapter 10 about um, the glorious institution, uh, the marriage relationship all the way back in Genesis chapter two. And so we're going to be paralleling. We're going to be in a lot of different places this morning. And so hang with us. You might be uh, sticking a finger there in Matthew 19 and then going over to Mark 10. We're going to kind of be bouncing around back and forth. Uh, but we'll make it uh, relatively easy to, to follow. That's my hope, at least. And so um, let's, let's aim for that. Uh, as we consider what we uh, will see and observe from Mark chapter 10, the main idea of the 12 verses that we're going to look at this morning, I think that a good place to start might be in the ballpark of this, in the neighborhood of, of this, that strength and endurance for covenant relationship, which is what is being talked about. It's what's being talked of here in Mark chapter 10. Covenant relationship and how we see sin affecting the way that we so oftentimes relate with one another and to one another in, uh, in marriage. Strength and endurance for covenant relationship is secure in Christ. Okay, did you guys get that, right? The, the strength and the endurance that is required for covenant relationship is secure ultimately in Christ who gives sustaining grace to the glory of his great name. As we read Mark chapter 10 and we parallel that with what we see from Matthew's account in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 and we're going to take an extended look at the covenant relationship that is marriage, that is instituted, that is defined, that is presented by God for his people. And we're going to ask this question, okay, what is it all about? Right? Because I think that, that oftentimes we find that there is a, a skewed perception of what marriage is about, not only culturally, but oftentimes among God's people. And so we're going to take a long look at Genesis chapter 2, seeking to answer that question. What is the marriage relationship all about? Who is it designed for? Ultimately, to what end, to what purpose have we been given this most wonderful institution um, that is the marriage relationship? That's what we're going to see and spend a lot of our time talking about this morning uh, from Mark 10 before we begin looking at how sin has affected the marriage relationship. And then what is the gospel hope, right? In the midst of broken relationships, not only the marriage relationship, but also uh, other earthly relationships that we enjoy and experience, right? 
Um, what is the gospel hope for those relationships, for broken relationships that you are uh, perhaps experiencing in your own life that you perhaps have at some season? Maybe you're in the midst of it now or it's just behind you. How do we respond to that, to broken relationships? What is the hope of the gospel? That's what we're going to spend some time talking about this morning. So let's go to Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 1, and we're going to read the first 12 verses of, uh, of Mark 10. And so uh, read along with me. This is uh, God's word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? Then said, Moses allowed, uh, allowed a man to write a certificate. They said, uh, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, verse 7, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Verse 9, what therefore God has joined together, Jesus says, let no man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Hey, let's pray and ask for the Lord's uh, wisdom and guidance this morning as we come to this passage. Lord, thank you for your love for us and for your grace that sustains us, that keeps us, that saves us. Um, Yeah, we do pray this morning that by the power of your spirit... Um, you might open our eyes and our hearts um, to uh, what can be a, a, a challenging, a difficult passage. Um, we pray that the hope of the gospel and your great love for your people might shine through in the midst of all that we see here this morning. And it might inform the way that we relate with one another, both in marriage and in those other earthly relationships. And it's in the name of Jesus uh, that we pray this morning. Amen. Amen. And so let's begin by addressing a little bit of the contextual, uh, the contextual happenings that we see here in Mark uh, chapter 10. This entire conversation centers around the interpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 and this issue of divorce. And so what do we see from the writing of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 in which this conversation is centered on? Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 says this, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, And he writes her a certificate of divorce. 
We see this issue of, of sending away, this broken marital relationship in light of some of the things that Moses addresses here in chapter 24. The teaching of Deuteronomy chapter 24 focuses on the issue of some indecency. As we read verse 1 of Deuteronomy 24, and we see this, um, this, this instruction, right? This, um, this, this uh, information as it relates to the marriage relationship and the brokenness that is sometimes experienced there. It all focuses on the issue of some indecency as the cause for divorce. And so it produces a question very naturally within us as we read the context for all that Jesus has to say here in both Mark 10 and Matthew 19, which we'll touch base on in just a moment, being how does one define some indecency? The the sum indecency that we see being addressed in Deuteronomy chapter 24, in order to properly interpret, understand, and apply what we see there, we need to understand this idea of some indecency. And so as we look back on the interpretation of that passage, historically, there were two popular schools of thought. And so let me walk us through both of those as we seek to understand and define some indecency, right, that produces based on what we see in the writings of Moses, a reason to present one with this certificate of divorce. You had the ultra-liberal interpretation of indecency that could literally range from burning dinner to bad-mouthing one's in-laws before your spouse, okay? And so ultra-liberal side interpreting uh, uh, interpreting what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 24 verse 1 would be, hey, man, if, uh, if we don't put the right, the right dinner on the table at night, right, then that is cause for divorce. That is some indecency that we might see being pointed toward and spoken of in Deuteronomy chapter 24. And so then thus broken marital relationship. If that happens, if these things happen, boom, cause for divorce. One rabbi went as far as to say that a wife's failure to find favor in his eyes, referencing Deuteronomy 24 yet again, could speak towards the presence of of a more attractive woman and thus reason enough to put your current wife out. And so we might define some indecency or finding favor in one's eyes as something or someone better has come along, right? And therefore this is cause enough for me to send you out and to embrace this new relationship. The more conservative branches would have interpreted this indecency as shameful exposure, okay, behavior short of adultery, given that adultery was punishable by death, that then produces this reason for separation uh, as it relates to the marriage relationship. Do we understand this is what the Pharisees are addressing? This is the tension that we see in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, its interpretation and application in the lives of God's people as they then come to Jesus and seek clarification on this issue. You guys with me so far? That's a lot of information to get us started. But again, everything that we see in Mark 10, these first 12 verses centers around this question. It was, a, it was upon the controversy of interpretation that the Pharisees sought to test Jesus. Mark records this in chapter 10. We just read it. As does Matthew in chapter 19. We'll see that in just a few minutes. And so so hold on to, to that idea. In Mark's account, 
He begins with Jesus discussing the writing of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 4 and the issue of divorce, that which we have just unpacked, right? In Matthew's account, however, we see Jesus first go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2 before then addressing the issue of divorce in Deuteronomy 24. In Mark's account, it's more the addressing of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and then Genesis 2. In Matthew's account, he begins with Genesis 2 and then goes into Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 24. This is, this is important. This is important, and I, I really, really appreciate Matthew's recounting of these events because it looks as though the religious leaders are seeking to understand the writing of Moses in Deuteronomy 24 without any consideration of the institution of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. They're trying to interpret Deuteronomy 24 verse 1 apart from the informing of it in Genesis chapter 2. Does that make sense, right? They're interpreting scripture without scripture. And so Jesus points them back to Matthew or Genesis chapter 2. We see that explicitly in uh, Matthew 19, which just a side note is always a really solid Bible reading practice. Right? That scripture might interpret scripture. We must consider what is present in Genesis 2 in order to properly understand what Moses has to say in Deuteronomy chapter 24, right? We're not wiping the slate clean. It's not as though Genesis 2 is no longer there. Jesus emphasizes that point here and that he takes us back there. You guys with me so far? Everybody good? Awesome. We have to start with Genesis 2 in order to properly understand and apply Deuteronomy 24 and cause for divorce. And I think that Matthew makes it really clear. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to start um, with Matthew 10. We've already read that. We're going to consider Matthew 19, Genesis 2, and Deuteronomy chapter 24 as it relates to this passage this morning. And so let's consider first God's intent for marriage in the first nine verses of Mark chapter 10. It's no secret at this point that the religious leaders, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have grown increasingly impatient and hostile towards Jesus and his message of this new kingdom. And so they confront him for the purpose of trapping him. And do you remember what we saw back in uh, the, the earlier chapters of Matthew's gospel? We see a recounting of the death of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist found himself in a difficult situation as a result of his speaking out against the illegitimacy of the divorce of Herod and his wife, who was previously his brother's wife, who he went and took her, right? Real train wreck, big mess, right? And as a result of John speaking out against the indecency of this union, the sin that existed there in the heart of Herod and his wife and the brokenness of the situation, he found himself at the end of a sword, right? He was beheaded, he was killed, right? And his head was presented on a platter. 
And so there are some schools of thought that would say this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees, having problem enough dealing with Jesus and this message of the kingdom, are seeking now to to create tension, as it were, that existed similarly between Herod and John the Baptist. That Jesus would speak out against the indecency of Herod's relationship and that as a result, Herod would catch wind and seek to do the same thing to him that he did to John. Others would say that they're trying to trap Jesus and that he might just wipe the slate clean of Deuteronomy chapter 24, say that it doesn't exist, that it's not there, and that then that would produce this this blasphemous act that would cause, uh, again, an uprising among the people as a result of what Jesus has to say. Jesus handles it in a truly marvelous way, a truly beautiful way. And so I want us to look to Genesis chapter 2, Um, And I want us to consider three truths displayed in Genesis 2 and explained in Mark 10. I want us to look at God's dictation of the institution of marriage. I want us to look at God's direction as it relates to marriage. And I want us to look at God's delight in marriage. And this all has to do with point one. And so we may not get through this today. We may do the gospel marriage part three next week. Okay. Um, and so if I see people starting to pass out in the aisleways, we'll just put that one off to next week. God's dictation, his authoritative order and orders for marriage, God's direction and God's delight. And so let's consider first God's dictation. God lays out in Genesis chapter 2 the order for marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, God speaks the design for marriage, this covenantal male-female monogamous relationship into existence. Mark does not touch on this as much, but Matthew does. And this is what Matthew has to say in Matthew chapter 19, verses 4 and 5. You can flip there if you would like, or you can just listen. Here it is. Have you not read, this is all in response, this is Matthew's account of the response of Jesus to the question of the Pharisees posed to him that we see in Mark chapter 10. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And then he says this. He says, and said. Okay, and so God creates male, female, and then he says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And so, the same way that God speaks creation into existence, dictating order among the heavens and the earth, light and darkness, time and space, by the power of his word, he lays the foundation for this most beautiful institution. God dictates what marriage is to look like. He speaks it forth. Right? He creates it and then he speaks it. And so we see God's dictation, his order and orders for marriage. The second thing that we notice is God's direction for marriage. Again, Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. He didn't hide her and make Adam seek. He made her, then he brought her. God gives away the first bride. And then, 
And both Mark and Matthew emphasize the words of Jesus here. God makes the two become one. We see, um, we see two deaths and a wedding, right? The two become one. What were at one time two separate persons, entities now are brought together into one, which brings us to God's delight in marriage. How, why, why and how does God delight in this institution of marriage? Well, as we continue our looking back at Genesis chapter 2, God says and Moses records, right, that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become what? They shall become one flesh. Moses then writes, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so what Jesus does here in Mark 10, as well as in Matthew 19, is expand upon what God has to say about the marriage relationship in Genesis 2. And the one flesh union that he performs when he says, What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate that we see in verse 9. We see that there is a two becoming one. And then Jesus says, What therefore has been brought together, let no man separate. Jesus does something that is really interesting here in Mark 10 and Matthew 19 as it relates to Genesis chapter 2. He makes what is to be understood from the Father in Genesis chapter 2 direct. Okay, he he makes what the Father has to say in Genesis chapter 2 absent of need for interpretation. Jesus essentially says this as we look at Matthew 19 and we look at Mark 10 and we consider this institution. We consider the marriage relationship. He says this, if there was any confusion, let me be clear. The one flesh union that is brought together that God does, right, that he accomplishes, that he makes, right, is to remain. Let no man separate. Uh, you know, I'm coaching right now with Logan. Logan and I are coaching a, uh, a little soccer team. And when you get this idea of explicit and implicit, it really helps the way that we understand not only how to read the Bible, but how the world works. Okay, Um, here is an example of an implicit statement as it relates to the game of soccer. Right. You've got your players around you and you go, listen, guys, here's what we're going to do. We are going to go and we're going to kick the ball in the goal. Right? That's an implied statement. That is an implicit statement, right? The expectation for those players is that they would go and they would kick the ball in the goal. Only when you're coaching second and third graders, Mac, right, you find a need to be much more explicit in your instruction than that, right? It moves from, hey guys, let's go and let's kick the ball in the goal to, hey guys, let's go and let's kick the ball in the other team's goal, right? There's a big difference there. And it's important that there is clarity. Now, what we see in Genesis chapter 2 was to be understood and applied by God's people. Only we've seen in relation to, De- to excuse me, Deuteronomy 24 that there's confusion that's been brought about. And so Jesus goes back to Genesis chapter 2 and he makes explicit, right, what was at one time implicit. It was to be known Only Jesus is removing any need for interpretation as we move 
as we move forward. But what does this one flesh union that God performs through marriage produce? We said it produces delight in God, right? But how is that so? How does he delight in the one flesh union? How and why does God delight in the one flesh union? Again, we want to look at the scriptures to answer this question for us. And Paul helps us out immensely in his letter to the Ephesians. Now, I understand that the whole first part of this this sermon, right, is built around understanding marriage. Okay, I get that. But that's the issue that Jesus is addressing here. But there's this failure to understand the marital relationship. And so we need to understand. That's why we're taking the time to go back and consider these things. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 31 through 33, he unpacks for us the mystery of marriage and its ultimate purpose when he says, and again, this is all in light of what we see in Genesis chapter 2. Paul writes this in verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, of course it does, right? Because we see it in Mark 10. We see it in Matthew 19. We see it in Genesis chapter 2. And now we're seeing it in Ephesians uh, Ephesians chapter 5. He says, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 32, he expands upon it. He says this, this mystery is profound, right? Indeed, it is profound, right? When you sit down and you consider the work that God accomplishes through marriage and two fleshes becoming one flesh, that is a profound mystery. Only Paul peels back the layers for us a little bit in his letter to the Ephesians that we might understand it more clearly. He says this, that this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Okay, and so what is Genesis 2 all about? Well, we see God's generosity. We see his grace. We see his provision, right? We see his care. All in Genesis chapter 2 in the institution of this relationship. Only we see in Ephesians chapter 5 from Paul that, it's, that it in and of itself is not the center of itself, but it exists for a higher purpose, that it points us towards an even greater truth. God delights in the one flesh union, the marriage relationship dictated by him and designed by him because, and this is it, Because it speaks of his love and commitment to the church in Christ Jesus. And so what is the marriage relationship all about? Is it it entirely for the happiness of two people that they might come together and enjoy marital bliss, right? Well, that's a part of it. Like God sustains and creates this this marital bliss that is so oftentimes experienced in, in the marital relationship. Only we see that it's not ultimately and primarily about that. It exists ultimately and primarily to speak of and to display God's covenant love for his church. The marriage relationship is a display of the love of God for his people. Right? Do we get that? That's what marriage is about. We have to understand that. We have to understand it outside of the 
interpersonal relationship that it is. It's much bigger than that. Which leads us into verses 2 through 5 where we see sin's mark on marriage. This is the intent of marriage, that it might display these wonderful character traits of God and how he relates to his people, caring for and loving them. Only we see, just like everything else, that sin has, has marred it, right? That sin has marked the covenantal marriage relationship. In Mark chapter 10, verse 2, Mark writes, And the Pharisees came up in order to test him, asking him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? In Matthew 19, verse 3, Matthew writes, And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? For any cause, is it lawful? Mark continues in verse 3. We're all over the place. Hang with me. Jesus answers them, and he says this in Mark chapter 10, verse 3. What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said to them, hold the phone for a moment, right? It's because of your hardness of heart that he wrote you this commandment. As we've already seen from Genesis chapter 2, God designs and defines the marriage relationship. And because this is true, we can rest assured that there is nothing that is broken with the institution of marriage. The marriage institution is not broken. It's not marriage itself that produces the need for separation and divorce. Instead, it is the broken human heart. Right? It's sin that produces this. This is not to say, this is not to say that divorce is always sinful. Okay, it, it very well can be, at which point repentance and restoration is needed. We can, however, say that divorce, in light of what we see in Genesis chapter 2, is always a result of sin. Right? We could all affirm that, right? We've we, uh, perhaps seen it, right? We've experienced it, we've witnessed it in our own families, perhaps. I love what John Piper has to say in relation to this idea. Listen to this closely. Lean in for this. This is really, this is really good. He says this marriage is not the problem. What's the problem? Sin's the problem, right? Sin is. The problem, Adam's sin, Eve's sin, our sin, right? Every marriage since Adam and Eve strains under the weight of sin. Do you get that picture, right? Do you get the picture of the straining that takes place, the, the, the bending, the pressure experienced in this covenantal relationship as a result of the brokenness of our world, the brokenness of the human condition. Sin makes marriage hard. Sin makes marriage hard. Every marriage, period. So the question is presented, should we not get married? 
I love the fact that he says this right here. I'm smiling already, right? Because I know what's coming. Because this is the same conclusion that the disciples arrive at following this same teaching from Jesus in the Matthew 19 account. In light of what Jesus has to say about the institution of marriage, the disciples in meeting with Jesus following this teaching say, man, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Right? It's the same the conclusion the disciples themselves come to. Only this is not the answer. How do we know that? I'm about to give you a great illustration. Avoiding marriage will not make our lives any easier. Just ask a single person. Right? If you're in this room and you're married, right? You have, you have issues in your marital relationship, as do all, because we are broken people in need of an ultimate redemption. Right? But that problem doesn't exist exclusively in the marital relationship, right? Like we experience it in relationships with, um, with those that we, that we date, right? Or those um, perhaps even that we just – that we live with, right? Our, our friends. Not marrying is not the issue here, right? Sin, sin is the issue. Apparently, Piper says this, apparently God didn't create marriage to make life Easy And all married people said, amen. God created marriage to unfold beauty. God created marriage to unfold beauty, depth, strength, and love that could never be discovered in a land of easy. God created marriage. To help us enter into the world of what real love looks like. If we are able to look past daily irritation, inconvenience, and selfish resentments to get a glimpse of the real thing, it will, get this, it will bring us to our knees in worship. Only not worship of our marriage, but of God himself. Right? God who created marriage to show us what his love for us looks like. That's what marriage is created for. To show us what God's love for his people looks like. And as a result right, of, of sins marked on marriage, Jesus brings clarification to Deuteronomy 24 and the institution. The instruction. Of Moses about divorce. Because your heart is hard, divorce has been permitted in certain instances. At the same time, the relationship between Christ and the church calls the believer down a path of reconciliation. Through what? Through grace. And a new and soft heart. In the case of Mark 10, one's spouse, but in a much larger context, our relationship with with one another. As we've seen in most recent weeks, Christ's people are strengthened, are strengthened by the Spirit to lay down our rights and our preferences, at times embracing difficulty, even in our relationships. Right, marriage and otherwise, in order to display the great love of God and his pursuit of sinners. I love what Piper has to say. I, this, those of you, I think there may be 
two, <laughs> David and Haley, who have gone through marriage counseling with me. We went back to this reality often that, that staying married is not primarily about staying in love. That's what Jennifer, like Aniston, right, would have to teach us from like any popular, secular, modern day movie about the marriage relationship, right? That's what culture would have to say. That's what it produces and encourages and inspires. Only we know that that can't be the end in and of itself. It has to come back to Christ. Staying married is not primarily about staying in love. It's about displaying Christ's covenant-keeping love to the world around us. That's what it's about. The marriage relationship is a missional relationship. It's gospeling one another. It's about displaying Christ's covenant-keeping love for his church to a world around us that is able to observe action and relationship and feeling. And notice something that is distinctly different about a believer's relationship with their spouse than anyone else. As we live this out, we see that a love that supersedes that which the world is able to understand is produced. And so let's not get caught on this statement that staying married is not primarily about staying in love. And so there must be no love. But hey, we're totally committed to this thing. Onward, upward, here we go. Right? What we see is that living in self-sacrificing relationship with one another, the covenantal relationship. Marriage, gospeling one another, will, even when those feelings aren't present, produce, right, a love in the long run that supersedes that which the culture is able to understand or define. Does that make sense? Right? When we say that staying married is not primarily about staying in love, that does not mean that there is no love. Of course there is a love. There's a deeper love, right, than the world is ever able to begin comprehending. In our relationship with with one another, the marriage relationship, and our relationship with God. We consider the relationship between Hosea and his wife, Gomer, who left her love, pursuing after the things of this world and relationships with other men. God seeking to make clear both the idolatry of his people and his covenant love and commitment instructs Hosea to purchase his bride back on the auction block, rescuing her and restoring her to a fruitful relationship by her husband's side. And he does. And this is indeed an amazing love story. If you're unfamiliar with it, go back and read it. But we can say this in light of that story, that at best, it is the second best story of love that we see in the scriptures. Taking the, the prize, the trophy, is Christ's love and commitment to an often unfaithful people. What can we say about Jesus and his commitment to his people? That which is to be displayed through the marriage relationship. We can say this, that Jesus has been faithful. Right? That Jesus has been faithful in the most difficult marriage. Right, that Jesus has been faithful in the ugliest marriage. That that being his covenant commitment to rescue a people. And because Jesus, this is, this is so important. For those of you guys that aren't married, right? And you're like, I checked out like 30 minutes ago. Come back to the fold and hear this. 
Because Jesus has been faithful, there is hope for any and every marital relationship. Because Jesus has been faithful, hope for any and every marital relationship shines through. Rest and hope for broken relationships is found in the faithfulness of Christ. Which brings us to our final observation and application from Mark 10. We made it. We made it through Mark 10, 1 through 12 after all. And that is the gospel hope for marriage. Listen to what Jesus has to say in verses 10 through 12. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Jesus is really clear here about unbiblical grounds for divorce and how one should respond in light. He has spoken clearly as it relates to the question posed by the religious leaders. He has emphasized the importance of the marital union in light of the Father's work in bringing it about and using it as an avenue to highlight what he has done and is doing. Let us consider the the earthly relationship as well as the eternal relationship. We have seen that the work of God, we have seen God's work is capable, is able to redeem all things. This is the gospel, right? That God is able to redeem, right? That he is in the process of redeeming. It informs the way that we understand and process broken marital relationships. And the direction that two people are to move. And so if we are in the midst of broken marital relationships, if we're in the midst of broken earthly relationships, what is the answer? Here it is. To move towards Christ. To move towards Christ for grace. For grace to see repentance and reconciliation and health restored to these relationships and to move towards one another as Christ has moved towards us. Again, the entire biblical, the entire canon, the story of redemption is God moving towards his people in Christ. The incarnation speaks of this. It displays this for us. And so we run to Christ in the midst of broken relationships for for strength, for repentance and restoration and, and, and hope and health. And then we pursue after one another. We pursue after one another and we can pursue after one another because Christ has pursued after us. You see, in the gospel, sin is not the end of the story. With the gospel, there is hope. There is hope. Right? There's, there's hope for the adulterous spouse to be forgiven. 
right? There's, there's, there's hope for an offended spouse to forgive. In Christ, there is hope, not only for our earthly relationship with our spouses and with others, but with God. We see from Christ an encouragement towards covenant commitment in light of his covenant commitment, the cross, his blood, and the resurrection. And at the same time, from Deuteronomy 24, because of the hardness of the human heart, there are biblical allowances for divorce. And for those who have for those who have experienced this, as believers, how do we respond? Our hearts go out, right? And, and, they, and they ache for, for broken relationship. We, we weep in light of the difficulty of, of these seasons, right? For, for those who find unbiblical divorce to be a part of their story. And Jesus speaks strongly towards this issue in Mark 10, 1 through 12. What we need to see in light of this story of redemption that is playing itself out is that there is gospel hope, right? That divorce is not the unpardonable sin, even in cases where it is entered into unbiblically. If possible, the call is towards recommitment to the one flesh union, to reconciliation. I'll give you an example of how this has manifested itself in my, in my own life. A couple of years ago, uh, my grandparents, who had been uh, married for, uh, I don't know how many years, maybe, I don't know, like, let's say 50 years, I don't know. I should have checked with mom, like, before this to figure this out. <clears throat> I get a call from my grandparents to let me know, and it was so strange, man. It was, like, really crazy. It was, like, oftentimes I feel like I'm in a parallel universe, and this was one of those times, um, to where I was on the phone, like, with my grandparents, and I got this picture of, like, one being in one room and the other being in the other room, and they're both still rocking landlines hardcore, right? And so they're, one's on one phone and the other's on the other, and they're telling me about what's going on in their relationship and that they had decided after X number of years of marriage to get divorced, to which you're just like, what? Like, you're old, right? Like, and you've been so faithful to one another for so long. Like, you're so close, like, to the end of the race. Like, why? Like, how does this happen? To which we go back to Mark 10 and we go, man, because the human heart is broken, right? Because we are naturally unfaithful. Like, we're, we're oftentimes unfaithful, perhaps not in terms of, like, like, manifesting itself in relationship with other people, although that is certainly a part of someone's story. But go back to what we see in, the, in relation to the Sermon on the Mount. And looking at uh, another lustfully, and this being an adulterous, an adulterous move, right? An adulterous action in, in our relationship with God. We so oftentimes, right, we run the other way. We flee and dive into thickets. Thank goodness he's so gracious to retrieve us time and time again. And so I get this call that they're getting, that they're getting divorced. And they did. They went through paperwork. It was insane. Like, I think that perhaps one or both of them were, like, unbalanced at this point. Like, something had gone incredibly, incredibly wrong. Long story short, let's say seven months go by. After seven months, they decide... 
that they're going to that they're going to get back together, right? Like Grandpa's been doing a really solid job of like courting Grandma again, and like like they decide they're going to do it, right? That they're they're going to actually recommit to, right? In light of this 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 separation, this divorce, unbiblical. They decide, okay, like. Like God does this work, like he produces this desire within them in their hearts for restoration and reconciliation. We see it happening. We see like biblical restoration happening in their lives. And they got married and like grandpa moved out of the condo that he had bought, which was again, strange, right? And then in back into the house and they're living together. And not a few months after that, they were walking one morning on a Sunday and my grandfather passed away of a heart attack right there in the middle of the street. And it was crazy. But it was in light of this, all of these things, it's, it's, it's incredibly beautiful to see the faithfulness of God, right? To, to produce within sinful, fallen, broken hearts this desire for reconciliation. We see that God does that. In the case of, in the case of, uh, of some, there is a new a commitment to this, this covenant, this new covenant, a new marriage. And that's what we saw manifest itself. And it was, it was wonderful. In some cases, this is not true, right? It's not always true that it, that it manifests itself that way. In which case, the encouragement is what? In light of what we see in Mark chapter 10, it's towards repentance, Right, repentance from past sin and a renewed commitment to the ultimate source of our joy and satisfaction, Christ, who sustains us and keeps us, along with a biblically informed commitment, perhaps, to to new relationships. You see, the story of God's reconciliation speaks to hard hearts and the rebellious spirit. The story of God's redeeming love and forgiveness through the work of Jesus points toward a future reconciliation of not only broken relationships, but all things. All things. And the Bible tells us that when this happens, when he does this, right, that we will sing a new song, that we will sing a new song of his grace and glory, that we will sing, right, hallelujah, hallelujah, what, what a savior, and so that's the, that's the hope, right, that is the, that is the, the, that is the goal, that is what our eyes are set upon, in the midst of broken relationships, in the midst of relationships in need of reconciliation and restoration, let us Corporally and individually run to Christ, desiring, desiring reconciliation when possible. But if not, then certainly a new covenantal commitment. Desiring that, that Christ's commitment to his people might be observed by those in the world around us. Amen.